Good evening. It's good to see everyone out this evening. And I know that we're in the middle of the gospel meeting. We have two nights left. Tomorrow night, as we gather together, we will study the topic of forgiveness. And I hope that you'll come tomorrow night. It's a lesson that I think that all of us can glean something from and something that we're all going to be affected by in our lives at some point. And that's... uh, that's our duty and our responsibility to learn to forgive as Jesus would have us to do. Uh, and then at the close of the meeting, Wednesday night, we'll study the topic of letting God be God. Now, I hope that you'll be able to come back to the last two nights of the gospel meeting. If you have your Bibles, my Bible's open to Romans chapter 12. And let me just say that thank you all for being here tonight. I know that it, you know, with society and, and, and with what the, what the world has to offer today, there's so much just challenging us for our attention nowadays and, and the, the fact that you're here tonight and your presence tonight says a lot about who you are and about the direction that you want your life to go in and so for that I am thankful. It is so good to see Dale and Tammy Robbins tonight. I, they're good friends of mine. I've known them for many years. Uh, it was just a few weeks ago I got an invitation. Uh, Tammy was celebrating her 30th uh, birthday party and uh, sorry I couldn't make it Tammy but um but uh, certainly good to see them here tonight, and I've known them for many years, and, and they're very, very dear friends of mine. And so, if you don't know them, uh, take a take a moment to get to know Dale and Tammy tonight. Uh, and so, I'd ask that you take your Bibles, and let's take a look at a, a passage over in Romans chapter 11. Very interesting passage here, because I want to focus our attention on verse 6. But let us take a look at uh, the passage here that Paul talks about. We're going to begin our reading here in verse 1. As the Apostle Paul writes and says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What shall, or, or, uh, but, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee, their need to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Other, otherwise, work is no longer work. Now, I gotta tell you, I'm a pretty simple-minded person, and when I got to Romans chapter 11 and verse 6, I really had to spend some time trying to unpack what the Apostle Paul there is saying. And it's really a a very convoluted and complicated verse on the surface. But when you look in the context and you try to determine exactly what the apostle is trying to tell us, it becomes very easy for us to see what he's trying to explain to us. What the apostle Paul is trying to tell us is, is there is an absolute difference between grace and works. There's an absolute difference. There's, there's a stark contrast between grace and works. You see, if we work for something and we earn something, what we have done is we've put someone in our debt to pay us something. It's something that we rightfully deserve. 
And when that happens, what he's telling us is, is that is not grace. That's not grace right there. The flip side of that is, is that if we, if we are given a gift that we do not deserve, if someone just, just out of the kindness or the goodness of their nature give us something that we do not deserve, something that we have not worked for, then what that is, is that is grace. That's not work. We don't deserve it. Someone gave it to us. That's grace. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this verse. There is a big difference between work and grace. And i got to tell you, this is difficult, especially for Americans to wrap their heads around. It's, it's very difficult for our society in America today to understand this whole system of grace because really... Everything that we do in our society is built on the concept of work. Everything in our social and economic makeup is built on the concept of work. We teach a work ethic in every aspect of our life. We exalt the work ethic to our children and to our co-workers and to our employees and to our employers. I gotta tell you, some people believe that this is a thing of the past though, that it's not practiced today the way it used to be. But you know what? The Bible has a lot to say about work. Believe it or not, the word work is a very, uh, one of the favorite work, uh, words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's used over 600 times in the Bible. And I'm gonna tell you something, work ethic is something that is taught over and over again. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 10, There, if a man does not work, neither shall he eat. The Bible teaches us to have a work ethic. It's important. It's very important. It's important for us as parents to pass that on to our children as well. Many of us, especially the older generation, those of us who have been been at this for quite some time, we believe that this concept that, 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 that has been drilled into us since we were children, we, we recognize this concept. We understand this concept. We grew up with things like the farmer's almanac. We grew up with, with things that taught work ethic. We grew up with parents who told us early to bed and early to rise. We grew up understanding what a poor man's reign is. How many people know what a poor man's reign is? That's whenever you work in the field and that's whenever you work in construction or that's whenever you work outside and you know the rain is coming, but the good Lord has allowed it to delay long enough that you can get your eight hours of work in and you can still get paid that day. We understand that. We recognize terms like like uh, the early bird gets the worm. I kind of got tickled when I heard the story about a, a father who was trying to teach this concept to his young son one day. And he said, you know, he said, son, you've got to understand what a work ethic is. He said, it's the early bird that gets the worm. And that little boy, he looked at his dad and started thinking about that. And he said, you know, that's kind of sad, dad. That worm get up early like that bird and he gets ate by that bird. And the father looked down at him and said, no, son, you missed the whole point. You see, that worm hadn't even been home that night. He had been out carousing all night. <laughs> we understand the concept of what that means to be, to, to be the type of person that gets up early and work hard. 
We understand the principle that there's no free meal. There's no pain. There's no gain. We could go on and on and on. But I'm going to tell you something, brethren. When it comes to the salvation of God, it doesn't work that way. That's the idea of grace. I'm grateful for our brother who led those songs a moment ago about grace. I love whenever we sing songs about the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We must understand, brethren, that we do not work to put God into our debt for salvation. That's not the way that it works. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, we understand this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what? It is the gift of God. This is a parallel passage with what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 11 in verse 6, that grace is a gift. Grace is the gift of God. I understand and I realize there are different type of works in the Bible. James talks about works. And James speaks of works of faith. But Paul here in this passage is talking about meritorious works. Works of merit. Works that where we tried to earn our salvation. And that's not the way that it comes down. That's not the way that it happens. And so what the Apostle Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 11 and verse 6 is this. That when it comes to salvation, we get what we don't deserve. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that when it comes to salvation, we get what we do not deserve? We deserve punishment. And yet we get a banquet. We deserve the wrath of God. And what do we get? We get love. We deserve a debtor's prison. And what do we get? We get a clean credit history. God has wiped our credit clean. And we deserve death. And what does He give us? He gives us eternal life. I gotta tell you, sometimes as I read through the Bible and sometimes as I study the Word of God in the New Testament, I'm guilty sometimes of becoming so familiar with the stories and the teachings of Jesus. And I fail to stand amazed sometimes at just how scandalous and how offensive many of the things that Jesus taught to these people when they first heard it come from the mouth of Jesus, how scandalous it really must have been to them. And consequently, I have entitled this lesson, The Scandal of grace. And brethren, I don't know if you've ever thought much about it, but I want to tell you this, that the grace of God that we read about in the New Testament is indeed a scandalous thing. And I hope you will allow me to illustrate what I mean by that. Turn, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, very interesting parable that Jesus begins to share with his disciples. And I've got to tell you, this is a, this is a, a parable to me that on the surface, it really, there's a lot of things in this parable that just doesn't make sense to me. But I want to begin our reading there in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 20, whenever the Lord says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, 
who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And when he went out about the third hour and saw others standing around in the marketplace, he said to them, you also, you come to my vineyard and whatever is right, I will give to you. And so they went. I want to stop right there and I want to think about something. First of all, a denarii a day was kind of the going rate at that particular time for the uh, the normal laborer's wage rate. It was called a denarii. It was a denarii a day is what most people made for this type of work. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow night. But do you notice the difference between the first verse and the third verse of this text here? Jesus promised, or, or the landowner promised... Those in the marketplace, a denarii a day, in verse 2 there. And then in verse 3, he went out, and, and we read down to verse 4. He says, whatever's right for you, I'll give it. I'll be fair to you. He didn't promise them a denarii. He said, whatever's fair, I'll give it to you. Whatever's right. And so they went. And again, he went out the sixth hour and the ninth hour. And he did likewise. And about the eleventh hour when he went out and he found others standing idle. And he said to them, why are you standing idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also come to the vineyard and whatever is right you will receive. And so when evening had come, the landowner of the vineyard said to the steward, call the laborers and give them their wages beginning with the last to the first. Now, I've always been curious as to why Jesus or, or, or Jesus in this parable in describing this landowner described a man who would be willing to pay the people first who started working later in the day. I never could understand that. But nevertheless, that's what he chose to do. And then I find in verse 10 something very interesting. But when they came, they supposed that they would receive, or verse 9, and when those who had came that were hired the eleventh hour, they also received a denarii. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarii. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, The last man have worked one hour, and you have made them equal to those of us who have borne and the burden of the heat of the day? Now let me ask you this. Do you think they have a legitimate argument here? I mean, I don't know of very many people, employers, who will go out and let people come in at the last hour of the day and pay them the same amount of money that a person who's worked the entire shift would make. Do you think they have a legitimate argument here? To be honest with you, brethren, as I read this passage, this just doesn't make economic sense, does it? But what we got to realize is the Lord is not teaching a lesson in economics, but a lesson in grace. He's not talking to us about the value of a denarii. He's not talking to us about the value of the economy. He's talking to us about the willingness of God to show each and every one of us grace. I love this story. I was telling Randy and Janet the other night as we sat around the table talking, you know, 
My grandfather was 76 years old and he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Up until that time, unless there was a wedding or something going on in the church building, he never darkened the doors. Shortly after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, he called my father and he said, what do I need to do to be ready to meet my maker? I got to tell you this. I'm thankful for those who come in the 11th hour and are able to receive the grace of our Savior because without that, He would be lost. The grace of our Savior is indeed a scandalous thing. Let me ask you this. Can you imagine the first time that the people heard this story? Can you imagine the look on their face? Can you imagine how bizarre of a story this must have seemed to those people who first heard it? Turn, if you would, over to Mark chapter 12. Over in Mark chapter 12, Jesus at this particular time was sitting in the temple and He was watching those come forward and those give up, those people were giving of their tithes. And Jesus was sitting there watching and He was watching these people give of their means. And the Bible tells us that in verse 41, Jesus sat opposite of the treasure and He saw the people put money into the treasure and many who were rich put in much. And then one poor widow came and threw two mites which makes up a quadrant. Now, I had to do some research to understand how much money that really was. And many believe that with the rate of inflation, that two mites would be the equivalent to one half of one penny. Now, things have kind of changed when I was younger. I would see a penny on the ground and I would probably stop and pick it up because when I was much younger, it you know, you get three or four of them, you might be able to buy something. This afternoon, I went on a, I went on a run over the, where Randy and Janet live. I went on a run and I'm, I'm jogging down the road and I look down and there's three pennies laying on the road and I just kept running by. I didn't even give it a second look. That's how worthless they are. If we can understand that, then we can understand what's going on in this picture here that Jesus is watching this woman and and the Bible says, so He called His disciples together in verse 43 and He said, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who had given to the treasury. I've got to tell you that I can almost envision some of the disciples stopping and saying, shh. We got some very wealthy visitors here, very wealthy guests that come through and they give a lot of money. And you know, they, they've got to give this money or, or, so that the work can continue. I, I, I can imagine if what, what would have some of the wealthy contributors had been like had they heard these words come out of Jesus' mouth. In verse 44, he says, For they have put in all out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she owned. i got to tell you, brethren, as I read this passage, what the Lord's saying here, just once again, it just doesn't make economic sense. (laughs) 
But again, Jesus is not teaching economics. He's teaching us the way that God measures things. He's teaching us the way that God looks at things. And through the grace and the mercy of God, He's looking at things much differently than the way that we look at it. i got to tell you this. Do you, sometimes we fail to realize this. God doesn't need our money. We sometimes think that every Sunday when we come in here and we sit down before we get here and we write out our check, that this is something that the church needs so the work can continue. And I understand the concept and I understand the, the, the idea of that and, and, and the necessity of it. But are you reminded of what the Lord said in, in Psalm chapter 50 and verse 12? God said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine in all of its fullness. All the things that belong in the world, God already owns. It's already His anyway. He just permits us by His grace to have a part in His work. God could get His work done without us, but He permits us by His grace to be a part of it. Just in awe sometimes. Some of the scandalous things that, that are surrounded by the concept of grace. And how we do not deserve to, to be a part of the grace of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Turn if you would to Luke chapter 15. We're in Luke chapter 15. It's always been interesting to me that Jesus here is talking about these sheep over here in Luke chapter 15, and he spoke a parable to them in verse 3, and he says, what, what man of you having a hundred sheep, and he loses one, and does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors, and he says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I don't know how much sense it would make to leave 99 sheep, 99 perfectly good sheep that are in the safe confines of the shepherd and to go off in the wilderness and leave these unattended to find one lost sheep. But i got to tell you again, the Lord is not teaching us the habits of farmers. He's not teaching us the qualities of shepherds. He's talking to us about the grace of our Heavenly Father. Can you imagine the reception that a story like this would have gotten? And even better yet, the story that we go on to read in verse 11 of this same chapter in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the prodigal son. Mark Twain once said, and looking at this story and commenting on this story, you know, Mark Twain was an agnostic. He was not a believer. But Mark Twain once said about this story, he said, this is the greatest of the short stories. And I believe that he's right. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. So he divided them and said, 
divided him his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and he journeyed into a far country and he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. I want to stop right there. According to the Jewish tradition, this would have been an extreme disgrace. The inheritance, the blessing that a father would give and pass along from one generation to the next would have not only been a physical blessing, but it would have included a spiritual blessing, the, the concept of passing down his faith to the next generation. And so what we read about in this passage would have been a disgrace to the Jewish people. And the Bible says that he went out and he joined him to a citizen of the country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine after he had lost all that he had there. Verse 16, and when he was gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave to him anything. But when he came to himself, how many of my father's servants have bread enough to spare and yet I perish with hunger? I will arise And go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring forth the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. And he's lost and is found. To many who probably first heard this story, this would have been a story that would have shocked them. They would not have been the type of fathers that would have reacted to this way. They would have been the type of fathers that would have said, you know, they, they, they would have seen the son come down the road and they would have slowly approached him and they would have told him, you know, you smell like you've been in a pig pen. Why don't you go get cleaned up before we even sit on and talk about this idea of you being a, a servant? We might be able to work something out, but let, first of all, let's get cleaned up. And you know what? There's a lot that you can learn from your older brother because he's never displeased me. My wife and I, we don't like to talk about this very often. But we had a prodigal daughter moment a couple of years ago. And so when I read this story, And I read about a father who was waiting for his son to come home. I can understand and I can relate. And I understand the grace of God. And I am grateful for the grace of God. And I can tell you that this interaction with my daughter taught me two things as I reflect upon this story. The first thing that it taught me is how much the father aches when we sin. I never knew that until I lived it. And because of that, you know what it's taught me? 
it's taught me to hate sin. To hate the sin in my life as much as I hate it in others' lives. And this event with my daughter taught me something else. It taught me how wonderful the grace of God is. Philip Yancey in his book, What is So Amazing About Grace? And I, I, I can tell you, he's a, he's a good author. And he writes some very good material. That is a tremendous book that he wrote. He shared a modern story out of his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? That kind of puts things into perspective. And kind of brings up to date this story of Luke chapter 15. And if you will indulge me tonight, I'm going to read this story. It's going to take a couple of minutes here to get through this. But I want to. I, I, this is an excerpt out of his book, and I want to read this to you. And I hope that you will indulge me and follow along. Yancey writes, a young girl grows up in a cherry orchard just outside of Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring and the music she listens to and the length of her skirt. And they ground her a few times and she sees inside, I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed scores of times she runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group when they went to see the Tigers play. Because of the newspapers and Traverse City's reports of lurid details, the gangs and the drugs and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she has ever seen, and he offers her a ride, and he buys her lunch, and he arranges for her to have a place to stay. And he, give her, he, and he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. She decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. And the man with the big car, she calls him boss. And he, he teaches her a few things that men like. And she's, since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. And she lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives are so boring now that she can hardly even believe that she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now she has blonde hair and with all the makeup and body piercing she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first shallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before he knows it, before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much. And all the money goes to support her habit. And when winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word for it. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. And dark bands circles her eyes and her cough worsens. 
One night she lies awake listening for footsteps and all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like the woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city and she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers as she's piled atop her coat. And something jolts a memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once and her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. Dear God, why did I ever leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do right now. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls and three straight connections with the answering machine and she hangs up without leaving a message. The first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and I'll get there by midnight tomorrow night. If you're there, if you're not there, well, I guess I'll stay on the bus until it hits Canada. About seven hours for a bus to make it, it takes about seven hours for a bus to make it all the stops from Detroit to Traverse City. And during the time she realizes the flaws in her plans, what if her parents were out of town and they missed the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Or even if they are home, they probably wrote her off for dead long ago. She would have to, she would have given them some time to, to, to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between the worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's my fault. It's not, it's all my fault. Dad, can you forgive me? She says over and over and over again and her throat is tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. When the bus finally rows into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have. Fifteen minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in her compact mirror. She smooths her hair and licks her lipstick off of her teeth. And she looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect and not one of a thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and the plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a a group of 40 brothers and sisters, great aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmothers and great-grandmothers to boot, and they're all wearing these party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the wall of the entire terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. And out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad, She stares out of her tears, quivering in her eyes, and begins to memorize speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know he interrupts. Hush, child. We have no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. When is the last time that you've thought about the scandal of grace? I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 55, if you would, with me. Isaiah 
You know, for years, as I looked at this passage, I always turned to Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 to show the sovereignty of God. And surely verses 8 and 9 reveal that to us. We often look at that and we say that His ways are not our ways. But I want to show you something that we often miss in the context of this. And I want to go back and I want to read verses 6 and 7, along with verse 8 and 9. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And listen to what He says here. And He will have mercy on him. And to our God He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. You see, in the context of that passage there, he's telling us that men don't understand the forgiveness of God. They don't understand the mercy and the grace that God's able to bestow upon us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And so when we look at the scandal of the grace of God, we may not fully understand it. But it's real. Years ago, when I was preaching in Danville, Kentucky, or Danville, Indiana, there was a brother that was diagnosed with cancer. And I went to visit him in the hospital. And he grabbed my hand one day, and right before we went to say prayer, he grabbed my hand. And and I mean, this brother had been an icon in the church for years. And he grabbed my hand and he said, listen to me. He said, I hope that I've done enough. I hope that I've done enough. In one of his last acts, Jesus forgave a thief dangling on a cross knowing full well, knowing full well that the thief on the cross had converted completely out of fear. Here is a man dying on a cross that would never study the Bible. He would never darken the door of a church building. He would never make amends for for all the people that he wronged. He said simply to Jesus, remember me. And Jesus promised, today you will be with me in paradise. And i got to tell you, brethren, that's another shocking reminder that grace does not depend on what we've done for God but rather what God has done for us. When is the last time you thought about grace? Jesus wants to offer that grace to you tonight. He's done everything. He's made everything available to us. He's now turned that portion over to us. We've got to repent of our sins and we've got to be buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk that new life, confessing His name that He is our Lord and that we believe that He is the Son of God and that He died on the cross for our sins and was raised to walk that third day. Do you believe that? If you do, He offers that grace to you this very hour. Maybe it is you've turned your back upon the Lord and 
you want to make amends. You want to, you want to clean up some things in your life that you know is some habitual sins that keep plaguing you. And you want to get that out and you want the church here to pray with you and pray for you. There's a lot of good people here tonight that will take your hand and lift it up to the Lord and turn it over to Him. Why don't you make your need known this very hour? Right now, while together we stand and while we sing.